uh, this conversation between Nicodemus and Jesus, and it's interesting to see that message uh, and then look at this message here today and kind of compare the two a little bit. Nicodemus was a person of influence. He was a Pharisee. Jesus calls him the teacher of Israel, and we talked about that a little bit. And Nicodemus finds Jesus in a city in Jerusalem, and he also comes to him in the middle of the night in order to avoid others from seeing this encounter. And then we have today's story of the Samaritan woman. And this takes place, you could say, on the other side of the tracks. This takes place uh, at the outskirts of a Samaritan village. And Jesus is not meeting a person of influence here, but instead he's meeting someone who is despised and rejected and shunned by an entire community. She also is avoiding people, just like Nicodemus was, uh, but for very different reasons. It's why she comes and does her chores in the hottest part of the day. The, it, the text says the sixth hour. Uh, that is noon, according to our calendars. So she's coming literally the hottest part of the day to do her chores. And my point in all of this is that it doesn't matter if you are a man or a woman, if you are rich or poor, if you're part of the majority culture or the minority culture, uh, whether or not uh, you are a person of influence or your uh, reputation has already been ruined, if you're an educated elite or theologically confused, Jesus wants to meet with you. He wants to meet with you, regardless where you might fall on any of those spectrums. Today, we're going to be looking at this story, the story of the Samaritan woman, someone who, like I said, whose reputation has already been ruined. This is a woman who's already been with six men of the town, which means to say that no one in the town has any love left for her. Six is the biblical number of incompleteness. And so it's as if to say, by having six men, that her heart is still restless. Her desires are still unfulfilled. She still has questions to ask. So we're going to be moving through this passage in, in three different movements. So first, I want to look at the barriers that surround her. So the religious leaders of that day actually forbid men to have any sort of public communication with a woman at all, period. And these are actual teachings that I'm about to share with you from first century rabbis. Uh, I'm not making these things up. Uh, one rabbi says, one should not talk with a woman on the street, not even his own wife and certainly not someone else's wife, because of the gossip of men, which I find that interesting. Usually in our culture, we want to kind of say that gossip is a, is a women's issue, right? Um, but this says here, like, to avoid these kinds of interactions due to the gossip of men. Another teacher says, it is absolutely forbidden to give a woman any greeting. And some of you have worked in parts of the world where teachings like this still exist. So there's a gender barrier here. But also the Jews viewed Samaritans as ethnically impure. And so there's also like an ethnic slash religious barrier at play here. The Samaritans, they have Jewish ancestry. Uh, but when the Assyrians settled the land, uh, you could say that that ancestry was compromised. Uh, the Samaritans were now a mixed race people. And this also led to theological differences between the two groups. And the Samaritan woman brings up one of the biggest disputes of that day, which is what's the proper location of worship. But there's also a fun, uh, here, not fun, I should say. There, uh, I, I came across this interesting example of Samaritan hatred of the Jews. 
Uh, the ancient historian Josephus reports that 20 years prior to Jesus' ministry, some Samaritans snuck into the temple during the great high holy Passover feast, and they scattered human remains uh, throughout the courtyard of the temple, thereby defiling it and obviously enraging the, the Jews. So there's this ethnic religious barrier. But thirdly, we see the barrier of this woman's past. And we don't know the details of this dear person's story. We don't know the degree of responsibility that she played in this or whether or not this was a result of uh, uh, corruption and, and oppression upon her. But we do know that this is a place of shame for her, that she wears this shame upon her shoulders, that it is a heavy burden upon her. And that's why she makes this journey up this hill in the middle of the day, the hardest part of the day, to conduct her chores. So in this first movement, we see barriers between this, between this woman and Jesus of gender, ethnicity, and also of shame. And Jesus is not ignorant of these things. He's not foolish about them. He understands these barriers crystal clear. But he chooses not to conform to the hatred that formed these barriers. And brick by brick, he starts pulling the barriers down. So now the second movement, the actual conversation. So over the course of this conversation, they go from discussing something like water to then discussing spiritual things and then the sensitive topic of her past itself. And as you watch this conversation unfold, you see that the woman's view of Jesus, the titles that she uses for Jesus, also evolve. She starts off by calling him a Jew. And then later she refers to him as sir. And then she calls him a prophet And then finally, she comes to this possibility that he could actually be the Messiah. So at the beginning, she asks him a question, which is basically, why in the world are you talking to me right now? (laughs) She identifies these barriers herself, right? And then Jesus gives her a very cryptic, but yet theologically rich response, very similar to the one that he gave Nicodemus, right? So in verse 10, Jesus says this, and pay attention to three key phrases that are in this statement. Jesus says, if you knew, one, the gift of God, and two, who it is that's talking to you, then you would have asked him, and he would give you three, living water. So first, the gift of God. This is a loaded term of the day that's sort of shorthand for everything that God provides to humanity to make himself known for eternal salvation. So that's a pretty big term. And honestly, we could probably spend the rest of the day just talking about God's grace and how it's told through the Holy Scriptures. That would be encapsulated by the gift of God. But second, he says, if you knew who it is, that is, Jesus is implying that he is a person of significance. And of course, we know that he is the long-awaited Messiah. But third, he, said that he, he says that he gives living water which is a common biblical metaphor for God's wisdom, God's teaching, the life that God gives us. We could think of Psalm 1, which says that those who are planted by streams of water are given those things, wisdom, teaching, and life. So Jesus is dropping some major spiritual hints here in this passage. And so if we were to decipher the code, or if we were to decipher these these words, these phrases that Jesus is saying, it could mean something like this. If you knew, one, the scriptures and the grace that they reveal, and if you were aware of, two, my identity as the Messiah, 
then you would be asking me for three, heavenly (laughs) revelation and eternal salvation. And ultimately, she doesn't really pick up on much of this. And I'm not picking on her because, again, I could remind you of last week when Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel, uh, also is told cryptic things and they just fly right over his head. Well, the same happens uh, to this woman. And honestly, if we heard a phrase like this, we'd probably miss it also. But that's actually fine because there's something else that happens here. There's something else that Jesus gets really excited about. In spite of her lack of understanding, Do you know what she does have? She has a deep, profound, and beautiful sense of curiosity. It is a holy curiosity. She looks at the well, and then she looks at Jesus, and she says, so are you saying that you're greater than our father Jacob? And that's a big deal. You know, we hear that and we're like, oh, Bible reference, you know, cool, it's a Bible, <laughs> whatever, you know. But Jacob, he's the last of the patriarchs, and he's the beginning of the line of God's elect. Jacob represents that covenantal bond between God and his people. And so for Jesus to say that he's greater than Jacob is to say that his bond is greater than Jacob's, that his bond with God is greater than Jacob's. And so Jesus hears this question from the woman. I can't imagine, or I can't help but think that in his head he's thinking, here we go. It's on. Like, this is fun. (laughs) And so her curiosity is evidence of this small ember of glowing faith that's bustling around inside of her. And so Jesus says, the water that I have is a well that bubbles up to eternal life. Which again is kind of a cryptic saying, way of saying, yes, I am greater than Jacob. To which she responds, sir, I would like some of that water, please. <laughs> so in this second movement, we see why Jesus is coming to this obscure location. In fact, if we, the passage was already uh, long as it is, but if we had started a few verses prior, we would have read that it said that Jesus had to come to Samaria. God the Father directed him to go to Samaria, and here we're starting to see why. Because hiding beneath all of these massive barriers that have sort of caged this woman is a beautiful ember of faith. It's a bit of curiosity. And as we see, this is an amount of faith that is small, yes, but it is about to change the world. So that brings us to the third movement here. So Jesus brings up these six men who she's been with. Now, a little quick aside, and then we'll go back to that topic. Do you remember uh, closer to the beginning, I think it's John chapter 1, when Jesus meets Nathaniel and a friend brings Nathaniel to Jesus. Do you remember this? If you've seen The Chosen, you're like, I know this story. <laughs> yeah, you were thinking of that, yeah. But what happens is when Nathaniel comes close to Jesus, Jesus looks at him and he says, I've seen you before. I saw you sitting under the fig tree. Do you remember what Nathaniel does? His jaw hits the floor and he says, Surely you are the Son of God, the King of Israel. Like just from that small little Jesus encounter, he leaps to these profound, theological, beautiful statements about who Jesus is. Well, here, 
This is a similar moment that Jesus is having with this Samaritan woman. This is a similar interaction. When Jesus brings up her past, it says more about who Jesus is than it does about her story. Are you tracking with me? This says more about who Jesus is than about her story. Because he's not bringing this up to like rub her face in the shame. She's already well acquainted with her story. She lives this every single day. No, what he's saying to her here is, I see you, I know you, and I'm still having this conversation with you right now. I know everything about you, and that doesn't change the fact that I want to talk to you right now. I'm not going anywhere, Jesus is saying, because I love you, and I want to be with you. Now, it's also beautiful that she doesn't respond to this defensively. She zeroes in on the identity of Jesus. He's totally captured her attention at this point, in the same way that he captured Nathaniel's attention. And she says, sir, I believe that you, or I perceive you to be a prophet, she says. Now, we're not going to go into the depths of the conversation about the, the debate of the day as to where to worship. Uh, we, can, we can talk about that um, next time or later. Um, but when Jesus gives her an answer to this theological question, he says to her, or she says to him, when the Messiah comes, he's going to clear up all of these things. And I can't help but think that at this point when she says, when the Messiah comes, she's probably looking at him like, when the Messiah comes. <laughs> and sure enough, he's so gracious to her. This is exactly the kind of person who God the Father is looking for. She is the embodiment of what disciples of Jesus are supposed to look like. We bring our questions to Jesus. We open our hearts to Jesus. She's curious. She's paying attention. She's tracking with him. And she's open to hear more. And Jesus, in one of the very few places in, in Scripture, reveals who he is. He says, I who speak to you am he. In the original Greek, it's the same phrase, I am, that's used of God sharing his presence and his name with people. This is a God encounter, is what Jesus is revealing to the woman. Well, at this moment, her holy curiosity transforms into powerful, contagious faith. Contagious faith. In verse 29, she runs out of the town, or out of, she runs to town. She forgets her, her jar behind her. And she says to everyone there in the village, come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? So here we have someone who once went out of their way to avoid people, who's now standing in the middle of people, sharing a story. We have someone who was once silenced by shame, but now she has a truth to proclaim. This is someone who was once caged by barriers, and now she's given absolute freedom to, to stand tall with dignity. And what happens next? Well, the townspeople start making their way up the hill. They start making their way up to this well of living water. And then they invite Jesus to stay there for a few more days. They listen to his teaching. What kind of Bible study would that have been? <laughs> what sort of truths would Jesus have been sharing with them in that moment? And then they come to believe and love Jesus 
And they say, we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. So in this third movement, we see that Jesus is the Savior of the world. Last week, we heard that God so loves the world. And this week, we see evidence that that is true. Last week, we heard Nicodemus kind of say with sort of shifty eyes and kind of half-heartedly, we know that you come from God. And then this week, we hear despised, rejected Samaritans saying, we know that you are the Savior of the world. The future realities of God's love is being made known to all the nations, tribe, tongues, and languages. It's coming true in the here and now. So what does this mean for us today? Well, Jesus has risen from the dead. Jesus is alive. The same Jesus who speaks to this Samaritan woman is alive here today, now. He breathes his spirit upon us. He animates us so that we can be the presence of Christ to one another. He is just as much alive today as he was in this story. And so if you're here today, I believe that if you are here today, you are demonstrating a holy curiosity that you have at least a small ember of faith within you, that Jesus wants to to blow up into a flame, that he wants to, to fuel. And if that doesn't describe you, know that this can be a gift to you, that this can be a place where your faith is fueled, where sins are forgiven by the power of the cross of Christ, and that you can get to know him more. No barrier is too big for him. He knows everything that you've ever done, and he still wants to sit beside you and talk with you. He loves you. He's not threatened by the questions that you have. In fact, on that note, uh, we're going to be doing something here at Restoration in a few weeks where we're creating space for holy curiosity like this. Uh, It's a series of teachings called Alpha. It's going to take place in the fellowship hall downstairs, and there's going to be tables available for us to come and uh, be guided in conversation through these kinds of questions. And so if you or someone you know is asking things like this, or maybe you yourself, you're, you're kind of at a place where your faith needs to be reminded of some basic, beautiful truths of Scripture, then please do join us in having these conversations. Because here at Restoration, we believe that Jesus is alive and that he is the Savior of the world, that he wants to make himself known, and he loves seeing holy curiosity among us because that small bit of curiosity can have enough faith to change an entire community. May we be a community like that. May we be a community where barriers are broken down, where the despised are given dignity, a place where the lost can come and find a home. Please pray with me. Lord Jesus Christ, our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Thank you, Lord, for finding us, for meeting us in the midst of our confusion In the midst of trying to avoid people, Lord, thank you for finding us, for seeking us out. Lord, I pray that you would grow the faith of this community, that you would grow our faith. Lord, where it is small, Lord, may you fan it into a a raging fire, Lord, that we would be a place that is consumed by your presence, that can be a light to to the place around us, into our neighborhoods and workplaces. 
a place where we can share that you are the Savior of the world, where sins are washed clean and we're given a home. Lord, we ask this in your name and for your glory. Amen.